Thanks everyone for coming back. I thought I'd just give a little context to the last few weeks of Dharma Talks because they've been a little different than what we normally do at Wednesday Wake Up. As far as the presentation and content, it's interesting because we've been up and running since December. And in the middle of all this, there has been some really wonderful opportunities, culturally speaking, to apply the Dharma, first with our pandemic and now with Black Lives Matter, where reality suddenly comes into stark relief and we can really see clearly what's going on in the present moment for so many folks. So that's been interesting. One of the benefits of Wednesday Wake Up and all these different Dharma groups is that we have an opportunity when these kind of things arise to apply the Dharma. And this gives us a really good opportunity to practice, to practice in actual real life situations where so often we're on the cushion and not so engaged in outside stuff, but we are involved in the internal interior journey that is part of the Dharma. And here we have an opportunity to do some of the engagement part but I did want to just highlight the fact that the last few weeks, this is a th part three of three Dharma talks that I've been giving on engaged Dharma. Unlike some of the other talks I've given, most of the time when I'm speaking dharmically, so to speak, I'm talking about things that I have direct experience with in my practice, and I'm teaching tools that I've been practicing for years, and I'm explaining how to apply them to things that I have done directly. And so... Most of what I'm speaking about is direct experience, so it's much, um, I would say, easier and coherent, at least in my head, because it's more of a sharing of a direct experience. And when I'm not directly experiencing it, I'll often cite that it's an aspiration of mine or it's the aspiration of the Dharma. Um, I'm certainly no liberated being. But I do like to, you know, talk about things that I've been applying the Dharma to. So most often I'm really speaking from direct experience, but the last few weeks have been a little different for me because I'm giving us ideas on how we apply the Dharma to um, what's been going on with the Black Lives Matter movement and racism and social justice. And I'm learning along with you all. So I really appreciate your patience. And this group has really been inspiring to me. And this reflection is really an opportunity uh, for us to be practicing together in the moment and directly experiencing the trials and tribulations of really applying the Dharma in some pretty intense real life experiences. And I'm learning along with you and I'm shooting from the hip here and uh, building the plane as I go, so to speak. And that's been very different for me the last few weeks than it normally is as a teacher, uh, as I said, because usually I'm speaking from a lot more specific direct experience. So on that note, I did want to conclude or continue the Dharma talk on engaged Dharma. Last week, we kind of defined engaged Dharma and talked a little bit about that. And this week, I wanted to cite a couple things I've been seeing on social media and on the news and give us an opportunity to explore how we might apply Dharma to some stuff that's going on, some communication challenges that I've been seeing that have been really having me wrestling with how I can apply the Dharma to so I want to I want to do that today and I also want to just let you know that you know as far as the way that Wednesday wake up is structured I obviously feel pretty competent in the role of being a dharma teacher but I am by no means competent to teach anything related to direct action or activism or these kind of things this is certainly not my training directly 
And so as we move forward in the next few weeks, you know, we I will be leaning back towards what I'm certainly competent at and good at. And um, I really do feel like it's my job to help us to open our hearts and minds using the tools of the Dharma. And then when we choose to apply them to things like Black Lives Matter or those kind of things, we really must find the appropriate resources to inspire and teach us to do so. Like, for example, I'm taking part in the Me and White Supremacy book group. And I know Doyle's, uh, Doyle took part in that, and so did Jim and Robert and about 50 other people. Um, so if you've not taken a look at that, it's, it's on Mondays, and uh, next week you can jump back into that if you're interested. But it's those kind of things that are going to train us to really apply the Dharma in various ways. And I do encourage you to seek out uh, teachers and trainers and those with those skill sets who really are good and formally trained in that kind of stuff. And I'm going to be doing the same in order to apply the Dharma. And granted, I'm still going to be talking about ways to apply the Dharma to things that I see within the social justice um, scenarios, um, things that I learn, I will certainly be sharing with us. But I just wanted to to reground myself in my actual role and my competence, which is to be the Dharma teacher, to be a meditation teacher. And that's where I really can serve you um, well, as far as being competent. Uh, the rest I'm kind of building, building as I go. So, you know, as we move forward, I certainly will be kind of leaning back a little into into my comfortable skill set while continuing to support uh, the engagement with Black Lives Matter and encouraging you to do so. And so this will be the last of this three-part series specifically geared toward this subject matter. So again, I want to thank you for coming and thank you for supporting us as we collectively learn about how to apply the Dharma to such an important matter. And uh, I really have valued your kindness and your attentive listening and your patience as we've moved through this. It's such an amazing thing to be part of this community, to be able to explore these kind of things. Uh, and then on, on one last little note, it's, it's, it's very evident that these last few talks that I've given have obviously been geared towards having a conversation with me being a white person, right? With other white folks or white identified folks. And that's really been the focus. So I never said that in those talks, but it certainly is obvious that the last few talks have been about engagement around this issue. And I'm coming at this perspective from a white male uh, who's got quite a bit of privilege. And so I have my own biases and my own perspective on this. And it's by all means, not a complete whole uh, perspective. So uh, please remind yourself of that as uh, my opinions come out of my mouth this evening. I do want to start with three quotes. I had this wonderful meeting I was in uh, this week, and and one of the women in the meeting was I think we could I think it would be called a organizational psychologist, and had a background in leadership. And uh, she had mentioned this guy Ronald, see Ronald Heifetz, I believe, and he's a teacher at Harvard and does leadership training. And I had just sort of gone to the website and I found these three quotes, and I I read the quotes and immediately was so surprised how relevant they are to what's going on uh, in our cities and. And they were so re relevant to the Dharma as well. So I thought I'd share them with you because they really struck me. So I'm going to give you these three quotes. And uh, these really moved me this week. The first one goes like this. Conflict is the primary engine of creativity and innovation. People don't learn by staring into a mirror. People learn by encountering differences. People don't learn by staring into a mirror. People learn by encountering differences. I thought that was so appropriate for my own sense 
of being in the world right now and encountering so many different points of view that are really waking me up to my own experience uh, of being a white privileged individual. And I really found that quote to be moving. Another one that he said was this, knowing how the environment is pulling your strings and playing you is critical to making responsive rather than reactive moves. Knowing how the environment is pulling your strings and playing you is critical to making responsive rather than reactive moves. This is so much about the Dharma. So often when we talk about the Dharma, we talk about mindfulness being this doorway to the present moment where we can learn to be so present that it allows us autonomy and agency in our lives. It allows us to respond with compassion and honesty and integrity rather than reacting out of what we all know as the five hindrances. So this is a wonderful quote as well, being responsive rather than reactive. And I really think this is hugely what is needed right now by many of us as we move into these dialogues around race and Black Lives Matter and activism and engaged Dharma, the ability to reflect, be concentrated, and with continuous mindfulness, be able to see how might I react with attentive listening, compassionate listening, and open heart. How I how might I be responsive rather than reactive? This is an incredible reference to such insight from the Dharma. And then one other quote that I found really interesting. Uh, he says, The activity of interpreting might be understood as listening for the song beneath the words. The activity of interpreting might be understood as listening for the song beneath the words. I think that's amazing, especially right now with so much energy, so much anger, so much frustration, so much frenetic energy in culture. Can we really take the time to use mindfulness to really see the song beneath the words? Can we really touch down on the universal needs that are being voiced? Can we really touch down on the call for help, assistance, participation, unification, and global and community sangha. Song beneath the words, that really, of course, is reminiscent of NVC, universal needs that are beneath our language, beneath our emotions, beneath our actions, the song beneath the words. I thought that was beautiful. So that was my inspiration for the week. What I'd like to talk about tonight is refuge, first of all talk about refuge, and then I want to give a couple examples of some things I've observed that are going on today, things I've noticed online. And I wanted to talk about these few examples and then walk through them and offer some suggestions on how we might be able to use the Dharma in a real-life scenario to bring compassion, wisdom, and equanimity to some conversations that are being had right now. When it comes to refuge, I just wanted to remind us, it's so easy in times of distress in times when things are unpredictable and when there's chaos and intensity and strong emotion, it's really easy during times like that to simply abandon the Dharma, right? It's really easy to forget that these are the times to buckle down and really take a refuge in the Dharma, to really ask ourselves, how can I use my meditation in this moment? How can I use my skillful action and my skillful listening and my discernment to help myself get relief from suffering? and help others to relieve themselves of suffering. It's really easy when we get shaken to put the Dharma aside and 
sort of panic, if you will, to kind of feel, oh my gosh, I'm not quite sure how to react or how to respond. And we forget that the Dharma is here to guide us on how to respond with wakefulness and positive intention. So at times when we're really feeling discombobulated, that's the real moment to remind ourselves to take refuge and to fall back into the comfort and safety and security of the wisdom of the Dharma. So now is the time for us to really take refuge in our skills, in our tools, and our practices, to really make efforts to use Vipassana to bring wakeful, wakefulness into this time. We take refuge in the Dharma to free ourselves from suffering. But as always, we remember that we are taking this refuge so not only can we be free from suffering, but so that our joy, our compassion, and our wisdom can be refuge for others. We always practice the Dharma for ourselves so that when we show up in the world, we can show up in a place of compassion and joy and equanimity and wisdom. So every life that we touch can be positively impacted. This is what we mean when we say, may all beings share in the merits of our practice. We take refuge so we may be transformed, so others may be transformed with us. It is always a Sangha experience. It is always a community aspiration that we wish for all beings to be free from suffering. So we take this refuge for our own safety, our own security, and our own comfort, so all beings may feel comfort and secure as well. The Dharma offers us incredible opportunities in time of trials and tribulation. And what I want to do now is offer a couple examples of things I've seen lately. I'm going to look at them from a psychological perspective, and then I'm going to remind us how we might approach it using the Dharma. And then if we have time at the end, we might do a little refuge meditation, depending on time. We might do a refuge meditation next week. But I wanted to point out a couple things that I know are causing some stress for people, and I'm hoping we can use the Dharma to release the stress so we can maintain focus on being loving and being compassionate and being wise during this time. And here's what I've noticed. And bear with me, I'm going to try to take this slow so I can make it clear, uh, both for me and in my presentation. We are experiencing a sudden and urgent focus on the reality of racism. And for most of us who are white or white passing, this can be very new. And it's happening so quickly and with such intensity and such frenetic energy that it could be overwhelming. Even when we do want to respond compassionately, even when we do want to participate, our first response might be just being overwhelmed by what we're being told, what we're seeing, what we're hearing, and we don't have a framework necessarily to respond or understand. Or we might not at least be aware that we've got a blueprint to take all this information in and act courageously and compassionately. It's natural at a time like this of cultural upheaval, cultural change, where we're trying to take this huge leap forward and do it on a massive scale, that we will seek out authority figures to get guidance. We will look up to certain people to say, hey, can you? how am I supposed to respond to this? What wisdom can you give me? Now, in our culture, of course, oftentimes we're looking up to movie stars and actors and social media people and influencers, and we don't always necessarily find an authority figure that can really have an experience that can really help us. But we do, and it's natural to seek out some kind of authority to say, hey, can you help me here? What am I supposed to be doing? Where can I take refuge? Similarly, it's really normative and common 
for us to look at culture at large for feedback. Am I doing this correctly? Am I responding in the way that I'm supposed to? Am I making my Black Lives Matter post in a way that's socially acceptable? So in this context, when we have such change and such a Nietzsche, we are looking for someone to tell us, hey, how do I do this? And then we're also looking for culture at large and what's going on on Instagram and Twitter and CNN to say, am I doing this right? Am I participating in a way that's culturally or socially acceptable? Because we don't know. Right? We're growing and changing at such a rapid rate, we just don't even know, am I doing this correctly? And that can feel really overwhelming, really overwhelming, even with the best compassionate and mindful intention. So I want to normalize that. This is what some of us are experiencing in different ways. And again, my perspective is limited. I'm just speaking from my own perspective here. Another thing I'm noticing is that when we go out to seek this authority to figure out how can I act compassionately in return, we're getting a lot of mixed messages. We're getting a lot of mixed messages, which is bringing up a lot of confusion, a lot of overwhelm, sometimes a feeling of paralysis, like I don't know how to act. And we might even be feeling angry, resentful, confused, irritable, tired, all of these things because it's coming at us and we're trying to figure out what to do and we're not quite sure how to interpret the messages. The messages are mixed and we're not quite sure how to respond, even when we really want to try and figure out a way of responding compassionately, intelligently, if you will. Here's how the cycle goes, if you're in touch with any social media. Many of us, if not all of us, are being asked to make a declaration of support for Black Lives Matter, to make some kind of declaration of support. If you're on the Constant Contact um, server or the listserv, you will have seen that over a period of three weeks, the Teachers Council and the board put together a response of support, of emotional support and declaration for Black Lives Matter. It took us a while. There's a lot of us involved in creating it, and we wanted to do it sincerely and authentically and with, with heart, right? And we wanted to also encapsulate it in the Dharma. It took us some time to be able to do that. But that was our response. It was asked. We stepped up. We felt committed to it and we thought it was something compassionate and skillful to do. We are being asked to make some kind of verbal or social media declaration of support for Black Lives Matter. However, sometimes when people are making those efforts, the message they get back after posting or speaking or talking about it is, you didn't say it fast enough. It wasn't quick enough. Why did it take you three weeks to post? Maybe that means you don't care. Why did it take you so long to support? It's not fast enough. Sometimes we're hearing the message, it's not sincere enough. I see that you posted something or you offered support, but are you being sincere? I don't think you're being sincere. It's not fast enough. It's not sincere enough. Another message that people are hearing is that what we're posting or doing in light of the support simply isn't significant enough considering the intensity of the situation and the, the history of the oppression and exploitation that what we are posting just doesn't feel significant. So there's a mixed message. On the one hand, people are being asked to stand up. On the other hand, when people do stand up, sometimes they get a negative reaction. 
not quick enough, not sincere enough, not authentic enough. That has a certain emotional impact on both sides. And as we go through this, I'll explain how we can use the Dharma to unpack this, but let me go through it first and explain what I'm, what I'm observing first. When the heart and mind reaches out to do something like this, to take a stand or to offer support, and the feedback is experienced or interpreted as negative, three things tend to happen, which make, make this sort of spiral, if you will. First thing that happens is we get caught in what in psychology is called a double bind. We're asked to do something, and then we do it, and then the feedback is, you did it wrong, or it's not good enough. And when we get that feedback, sometimes the heart and mind feels trapped, and we collapse into non-action. Because we say to ourselves, well, I tried, it wasn't good enough, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, so I'm not going to do anything at all. And we fall back into inaction, right? We shut down, the heart closes down and contracts. The mind says, hey, I gave it a shot. I'm not going to try that again. And so we're afraid, we have the sense of fear, and so there's a contraction of the heart in response to that energy. So that's one way the heart-mind naturally responds, because we feel trapped, a double bind. We can't win, catch 22, either way. If I say something, it's not good enough. If I don't say something, I'm not participating, what do I do? And so the mind and heart, they don't, we don't know what to do. And that can be a significant energy for people. Another thing that can happen in these kind of situations there's a psychological concept called frustration aggression model, which means when you ask a human being to do something to take on a task, like a goal, and then in their pursuit of the goal, you take away their ability to be successful at it, it leads to frustration, and that frustration can lead to aggression, either internal aggression or outward aggression, frustration aggression. So in this case, if someone asks you to do something to participate and then the goal can't be met appropriately. The heart sometimes contracts and we can get frustrated and aggressive towards ourself. I'm not good enough. I don't know how to do this. Or we can actually move that aggression outward toward others. And we can say, I don't want to participate in this cause. This cause is stupid. I'm not going to support this. And we start reacting negatively outward towards the cause itself or towards the invite, so to speak. Again, a normal psychological process that happens in situations. The third example of what happens oftentimes in these kind of situations that you see is called psychological projection. If I am invited to participate and then in response to that participation, I get negative feedback in which I feel I wasn't fast enough in my response, I wasn't sincere enough in my response, I wasn't authentic enough in my response, those negative emotions, I don't want to feel those negative emotions. So what do I do with that negativity that's in my heart and mind? What do I do with it? <laughs> well, instead of dealing with it and processing it inside, I hand it off to you. And so I tell you, you're not quick enough. You're not fast enough. You're not supporting the movement in a way that you need to support. And so instead of dealing with my emotions, I project outward and then I reprimand and I go around with my negativity towards other people and I start making them feel how I'm feeling because that's how I release the energy. That's how I make the relief as we project it out. We see all of this happening now. If you're on social media at all, this is everywhere. This whole cycle is everywhere. Another thing that goes on with projection in situations like this 
And this is happening a lot with white folks and white identified folks right now. I really want to participate. I want to be compassionate. I want to be intentional. I want to support this cause. I really hear the cry of suffering and I want to figure out how to do something. And so I join a book group or I go listen to a movie or, or watch a movie or listen to some podcasts or some folks who are highlighting black voices and so on. So I'm in the game. I'm trying to participate. This feels great. I'm in this now and I'm feeling good about myself. But I'm still a little insecure about what's going on. So what do I do? <laughs> this is called finders keepers in activist training. You end up getting the training. And since you got there first, now you can go criticize other people for not having the training you have, for not having watched the movie, for not having supported before you did. So there's this entitlement. You see this a lot when people have insights about things, right? So someone realizes that they have the racism or they suddenly realize white privilege. They've been experiencing it now for about two and a half days and suddenly you're behind the times. Why don't you realize you have white privilege? I've known this for at least 48 hours. I got here first. Now I can feel righteous and now I can broadcast that righteousness to others. We see this a lot in spiritual communities. We see this a lot in activist communities. I got there first and so I'm entitled to then criticize you because you didn't get there before me. We see this a lot when uh, people wake up in all kinds of ways. For example, let's say someone turns you on to some aspect of climate change and you realize, oh my gosh, carbon footprint. Okay, there's this new concept. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm deciding that I'm going to take the bus a couple times a week to reduce my carbon footprint. And the first thing you do is you go to your friends and say, why aren't you guys taking the bus two times a week? I've been doing this. I'm lowering my carbon footprint. Why are you lowering your carbon footprint? Right? You haven't even got on the bus yet, and you're already telling other people what they should have been doing. This is totally natural for human beings to behave in this way. Psychological projection. You will find this wherever you find communities where human beings exist. Everywhere that human beings are, these kind of things happen. So I want to normalize this, because it causes a lot of suffering, but it's totally normal for the heart and mind to respond in this way. Even with our best intentions, we can contract our heart and collapse into ourselves and experience aggression towards ourselves and others, even when we're trying to do good for ourselves in the world and others are even requesting it. So I'm seeing a lot of this. And as a therapist and a Dharma teacher, I really want to point this out because I see people suffering from this and our mindfulness can be aware of these functions and we can use the Dharma to, to decrease it. So the other thing I wanted to point out that we're seeing a lot of is, of course, cancel culture cancel culture. And just to say where cancel culture comes from, cancel culture is a personal boycott of a person. And it's usually done online when someone says something or does something that's either inappropriate in some way. In this case, it was going to be racism or it might be sexism or it might be homophobia or they make some remark or something. And we delete their feed. We no longer support them. We encourage them to be fired or reprimanded. It's, it's this kind of thing. It's cancel culture. The reason I bring it up, because the Dharma encourages the exact opposite of cancel culture. And I'll talk about this in a second. But cancel culture is this way of basically denying someone an opportunity to make amends. We deny a person an opportunity to learn, grow, change, and awaken to what they've done. Instead, we just punish them and cancel their ability to be able to be part of the community 
or to be accepted or to be cared for, right? It's a, it's a type of punishment. Um, and it really is, in my opinion, the exact opposite of what, what we do in the Dharma. In the Dharma, we believe in general that we can grow, we can change, and that we can use mindfulness to look into the darker parts of ourselves. We can look into the more hateful things that we've done to people, the cruel things that we've done to people, and we can wake up and realize, oh my gosh, I've done this thing. And then we can move into the world and try to show up with wisdom and compassion. So we have this opportunity to either educate or eradicate. We can cancel or we can encourage compassion. And so from a Dharma perspective, I would encourage you to remember that we can take refuge in the fact that awakening is a form of education and we can point out that people are doing things that are harmful and let's follow that up with offering them the opportunity to grow, awaken and change and be a part of the community in a positive way. Because I know I would want that if someone would point out my faults, which I've got tons of them. Those are the ones I'm aware of, the ones I'm not aware of, right? Even that part of it. But it's one of those things I'm seeing is a lot of uh, just sort of crushing people, right? Pointing out that they've done something wrong and not giving them any plant chance or pathway to awakening. And what we know about in the Dharma is people who've done the most harm can often do the most good. People who've done the most harm can become awakened and be the greatest allies to a cause. But if we cancel them, so to speak, there's no opportunity to bring them into the fold, to really allow their lessons to be heard, allow the awakening to be powerful and profound, right? And I mentioned this last week that I had stumbled upon a book by someone who was involved in some pretty crazy white supremacy group and had woken up to what they had done and written a book about how they came out of it, how they came out of the hate, how they came out of the violence. And so here you have someone firsthand giving us the story and the lessons of how to teach goodness and how to speak to someone who's been in the midst of that hatred and that violence. What a precious gift to us that this person was able to explain their awakening to us because then we can use that to teach others and to learn from. So it's really important that when we see this type of behavior, I think, again, this is my perspective, you have your own perspective, but as a Dharma teacher and a therapist, I really think that from a Dharma perspective, what we're really doing is inviting education and inviting transformation and mercy and forgiveness. Now, there is a context where people are behaving in a particular way and obviously we can't support it. But in general, people make mistakes and they say things and they put their foot in their mouth or say something mean or rude or cruel or ignorant. And my hope is that we could allow people some mercy and forgiveness and, and help educate towards this path of awakening. And that's where we would do it in the Dharma. So I think there's a plenty of opportunity here to really use the Dharma at this time to notice these type of patterns. So what I want to do is go back to this first example, and I want to point out ways that we can use the Dharma, take refuge in the Dharma to get some relief here for ourselves and really move towards awakening. So, sorry, where's my paper? Ah, oh, here we go. Okay. So let me go back to this. So my first example, as I said earlier, was the mixed messages that we get. We're being asked to participate and we get a negative feedback loop and our hearts and minds contract. And we either act aggressively, or we act righteous, or we don't participate in all, at all, which is, is not what we want. We want to be participating. So 
our hearts contract and our minds shrink and we're like, hey, I don't want to participate in this. This is not feeling good to me. How do we bring mindfulness to this? Can we bring Dharma to this moment where we can turn this discomfort into awakening? Awakening for ourselves and compassionate participation so we can help with others. First thing I wanted to point out, mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. Let's remember when negative and aversive emotions arrive, we have mindfulness. We can bring this negativity into awareness and really be present. We don't have to run away from discomfort. As a white person trying to wake up to my unconscious racism, that's going to be uncomfortable, right? I'm going to find out, oh my gosh, I've inadvertently hurt people. That is not going to feel good. Can I bring mindfulness to that discomfort and hold it, right? In equanimity, in self-compassion. Can I bring mindfulness to these uncomfortable sensations rather than run away, right? Rather than give in to the aversion. Our Dharma, really, this is a perfect opportunity to bring awareness to some really deep, negative, wounded parts of ourselves, right? That we haven't even been aware of. The fact that we haven't been aware of it oftentimes is really what makes it sting when it comes up because our ego is kind of like, yikes, I've been, I've been participating in this. I've been inadvertently hurting people. I didn't know that. So there could be a sorrow and a guilt, right? A feeling of like vulnerability and helplessness. Mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. Our primary tool can be used to create a safe container for ourselves to be with that negativity, to be with that guilt, to be with the shame of that experience. That allows us to stay in the game of compassion, right? So we don't have to close down our hearts and close down our minds. We can be present with this transformation. In fact, we have the tools, right? This is what the Dharma is about, to go in there. First noble truth, there is suffering. We lean into the suffering and we hold it in loving compassion. That's how we transform. So when you're feeling all of these negative emotions, as you're trying to figure out how to participate in engaged Dharma, let awareness create the safe container for the negativity that arises. It's okay. If you feel judged, bring awareness to that feeling of being judged. If you feel like someone's being impatient with you, bring awareness to that impatience. Honor it. Welcome it in. It is a pathway to freedom. We can use this negativity as a pathway to awakening. Let's remember that the Dharma is based on empathy and compassion, right? The heart and soul of what we do in the Dharma. Wisdom, compassion. Wisdom and compassion. A lot of the negative feedback that we're getting when we try to participate and support a movement, whether it's climate change or Black Lives Matter or whatever we're standing up for, right? When we go to participate, we have to remember that those people who are asking us to participate are suffering greatly. The urgency and the need for change is so powerful we cannot expect the dialogue to be calm, free of anger, free of aggression. We cannot decide how these dialogues go, right? The urgency for a person of color, for a black person, when they see another black person being killed like George Floyd was killed, that urgency is going to feel different than it is for me as a white person. So when I step up, 
and someone is saying, you need to right now support Black Lives Matter, that urgency comes in the face of death. That urgency comes in the face of violence. That urgency is coming from suffering. And we, as Dharma practitioners, we can take a step back and we can feel that urgency, not as an attack, but as a desperate call for Sangha, a, a urgent call for support of the heart. So we can look through and we can find, as I said earlier, we can find the song beneath the words. We can find the suffering in the judgment. We can find the call to freedom in the burning of a building. Now that takes serious courage. That takes real mindfulness. That takes real compassion to hold that space. What we're really being asked to do right now is to listen, to really hear the pain. And the urgency to be heard is not necessarily going to make us feel good. And we can honor that it doesn't make us feel good. And we can step up with courageous compassion and hold the discomfort and still make a vow to participate. We can still, with courage and perseverance and equanimity, we can hold that space of discomfort and we can participate. I know when we were writing the, the constant contact message, I kept thinking to my, I was anxious and I kept thinking, we've got to put this on the website. We've got to put this on the website. I was feeling the sense of being judged for not doing it quick enough. And there was a sense of fear. And I was thinking, I don't want people to think that PIMC is not caring, that we're not compassionate. But for the life of me, we couldn't get this thing written quick enough because we really wanted to spend time thinking about it and really wanted to spend time making it authentic. I have mindfulness. So I would encourage you, there's an example of that moment where we can bring awareness to the urgency. Don't feel judged by the urgency. Hear the suffering in the urgency. And in doing that, our heart doesn't close down. Our heart remains open. Our wisdom remains attentive and poignant, right? And persistent. So that's a way that we can take these messages, which can come across and create negativity. And we can hold that negativity and we can transform it into authentically engaged dharma. Another example, again, often with white folks, your friends, your spiritual community, other people you know are going to be coming to you and saying, you got to participate. You're not doing it fast enough. You're not doing it good enough. Why aren't you doing this and that and this thing and the other thing? Remember that that person really, really wants to be good. That person is really feeling themselves that they're not good enough. They're not doing it fast enough. They're not doing it authentically enough. When someone approaches you and says, why haven't you posted on social media? They don't feel like they've posted quick enough. That's the projection. And with mindfulness, if you can notice those messages and see the suffering in the message, then we won't take it personally and we can stand in solid compassion and sangha and community and camaraderie with the other person. So the Dharma allows us to stay connected and in community in the face of discomfort at a time when we're going to be feeling a heck of a lot of it, both as people, as part of a culture, but also as white folks or white identified white passing folks. There's going to be a lot of that energy. And we've got the tools of the Dharma to be able to listen for the suffering rather than feeling judged. I've had several people ask me, or tell me really that I need to take part in this training and that training and this training over here and this training. And I felt really judged. 
and it came at me so quickly. And I felt, oh my gosh, I can't take all these trainings or read all these books. How am I going to be a good Dharma teacher if I don't do all these things? And I was really feeling judged by other white people who were telling me I wasn't doing enough as a Dharma teacher or enough as a meditator. And then I remembered, oh, these people are also feeling like they're not doing enough as well. Can I hear that in their requests and not feel judged, but feel their request as a call for Sangha, right? Hear their request as a call for support. Hear their request as a call to be loved. Hear their request as a need to get the feedback like, hey, we're in this together. Let's see what we can do to help. Let's see what we can do to help. Let's see what we can do without judgment, without hatred. And this is where the Dharma really comes into play. The other part, as I mentioned earlier, was the cancel culture. And I already mentioned it, but I'll kind of conclude with this part of it, that in the Dharma, the promise of the Dharma is freedom, right? And that freedom is characterized by love and wisdom, a balanced heart, an awakened mind. It's promises tranquility and joy, right? And true and authentic happiness, a type of happiness, if we remember, that does not involve the harming of others. That is the promise of the Dharma. I believe that the Dharma invites us to always keep in mind that human beings come into this world ignorant. Beginner's mind. We just don't know everything. We're going to have blind spots. Our entire life, it's a series of blind spots that we keep awakening to. Blind spot, awakening, blind spot, awakening. Oh, look, I did harm here. Awakening. Another blind spot. Oh, I'm doing harm over here. Awakening. Every moment of harm is an opportunity for awakening. And when we can really get in touch with our own ignorance and our own beginner's mind, this this feeling that, oh my gosh, I don't know what's right, but I want to do right by somebody. That's what allows us to connect with somebody else in mercy and forgiveness. That ability to honor your own blind spot allows you to build a bridge to another human being to forgive them, offer them the time of day, and help them cross over into compassion as well. So we have to first honor our own ignorance and understand that we do hurt people without knowing it. There is this systemic racism that most of us are just now hearing about, hearing about in the way that it's being presented. We may have heard about racism, but the language being used and the depth of the insight, for a lot of us, this is brand new, right? And so there's this huge blind spot we're coming into contact with. If we first honor that ignorance and get comfortable with it and allow mindfulness and compassion to embrace it, then that allows us to embrace each other. That allows us to look at somebody else and say, you know, I've been told that what you're doing is harmful. Here's what I've learned. Why don't we heal together on this? Why don't we do something together in camaraderie, in communal support to stand up against this systemic problem and our participation willingly or unwillingly in it? So I would encourage you to promote education rather than cancellation, right? Compassion versus cancellation. That is my request that you look at the Dharma in that light. Because if people don't have an opportunity to make amends, what happens is it pushes that lack of opportunity into regret, resentment, anger, and ultimately revenge. So if we don't give people the opportunity to be forgiven, that will eat them alive. And these people are part of our community. They live in our communities. And we have an incredible opportunity to transform this pain into compassion.
So I would I would definitely recommend that you look at it in a Dharma way because I think people are really desperate to do right and they're desperate to be educated and we're just not going to get it right the first time. We're going to put our foot in our mouth and we're going to say things and it's like, oh, sorry, that's hurtful. Okay, let me try again. Please allow me to try again. And we can support each other in that effort, in that community transformation. We can really do that with the Dharma. What I'd like to do is first thank you all for coming this evening. The last few weeks, Dharma talks have been pretty directed towards all of this intense energy. And I know that's not what we've normally done in Wednesday Wake Up. And so I really, I want to honor the courage and your commitment to being awake and aware and being compassionate and joining me on this journey because this has been so helpful for me to be able to process this. It forces me to process this and to figure out how I can bring the Dharma into the world in my own life and to support you and to support PIMC. So the fact that I come tonight and all these people are here, this is hugely helpful for me personally and I wanted to reflect back my gratitude for you participating in this awakening process with me. It, it just means everything to me that we can do this together. I would like to conclude with a little reflection. As always, I talk until the very last minute. <laughs> I want to conclude with a little reflection when we do our meta on refuge, because I think it would be appropriate to bring this together for us. Um, and then I'll just say a few words at the end after I ring the bell. But, but please get comfortable for a minute and let me bring this together in just a brief reflection for a minute or two on refuge. And then I'll just say a few concluding words afterwards. Just get comfortable. Bring your awareness back to your body. Take a really long, slow, deep breath in and out, bringing awareness to the entire body, full body awareness, bringing that breath energy into every nook and cranny of the embodied being. I'd like you to consider the following. The Dharma claims to be a path that leads to the end of suffering, and you are walking that path. We embark on this path to free ourselves so we can show up in the world as wise, joyful, and compassionate beings that are 100% committed to the freedom of all beings. That is the path that we are walking. That is our commitment. We take refuge in the Dharma so we can learn and grow and awaken and heal and then show up as refuge in the support of others to do the same. This is the path. We can hold steadfast to the belief that no matter what action we take in the world, no matter what the cause, if we bring the heart-mind qualities of compassion and wisdom, tranquility and joy, to these situations, harm will be lessened, compassion will be increased. We can take refuge in this. We can take refuge in the fact that using the Dharma, we can hear the suffering in the noise, that we can pierce through the fog that is confusion and overwhelm discover the cause of that suffering, and skillfully act to uproot it. 
we can take refuge in the fact that the Dharma allows us to act kindly when we are encouraged to act out of hate. We can take refuge in the fact that our practice trains us to offer empathy, forgiveness, and mercy when others are encouraging us to create enemies and rob people of an opportunity to awaken by learning and growing from their mistakes. We can use mindfulness to slow down. We can use discernment to discover a wiser action when those around us are demanding we act impulsively without proper reflection and without discernment. We can take a stand for discerning and compassionate action. We can hold fast to our ethics when others are trying to convince us that we are in a time where ethics are not relevant, not useful, or outdated. We can lessen our judgment of others by remembering that when the mind and heart are under strain and duress, we tend to act out of the hindrances. We can lessen our judgment of others by honoring beginner's mind and acknowledging that we don't have all the answers and that we are capable of making mistakes that can harm ourselves and others. And we will hold those mistakes in wisdom and compassion. We come together week to week to take refuge in all of these facets, all of these qualities, and all of this potential. And we do it for ourselves and for all beings. May all beings share in the merits of our practice. May we be awake so we can be refuge for others to be awakened. May we be loving so we can be refuge for others to be loved. May all beings be free from suffering and know true joy, true happiness, and true freedom in this lifetime. Thank you, my lovely friends, for meeting again.